If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please take them and turn to the New Testament book of Matthew, the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Today's message will be the first in several messages that are to come, I trust and pray, following the idea of how to live life according to Jesus. And we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven. These chapters comprise uh, uh, the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher about the greatest subjects of life. And of course, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we believe that all of the scripture is divinely inspired of the Lord. And so we're going to be looking the next several weeks, I trust, uh, as the Lord leads and the Holy Spirit directs us uh, to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to start today with that section of scripture called the Beatitudes. And we're going to be taking each one of the Beatitudes one by one and seeing exactly what the Lord has in store for us as we obey uh, the Beatitudes. I, I believe that if you take the, uh, the eight Beatitudes that are found in the fifth chapter of Matthew, you can apply them to every uh, subject that is mentioned in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And I firmly believe that if a person who professes the Lord Jesus Christ would be committed to and practice the principles laid out in the Beatitudes, you could solve every problem in the world if you would follow those principles. And I hope with the direction of the Holy Spirit as we work our way through these verses of Scripture that uh, we will begin to understand how if we apply these principles, what I'm saying to you can be the gospel truth. So we're going to be looking at this wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. Now, look at verse 1, if you would, chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel and verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and... And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, let me begin in this passage of scripture to remind you that although this is a sermon and we call it the Sermon on the Mount, actually, it says in verse two or, uh, that Jesus taught. Look at verse two. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. And I found it interesting, I was looking at some other passages of scripture this morning as I was going over the notes, how many different times in the New Testament it says that our Lord taught. Now it's not wrong to refer to this uh, passage of scripture as a sermon, because surely I hope that along with the proclaiming uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a whole lot of teaching is going on. But listen to some of these verses of scripture. I'm reminded of the night that Nicodemus went to Jesus. And this is what he said in his introductory statement. Rabbi, the word rabbi means teacher. He said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Now, our Lord went on to pressure him into understanding, I'm not just a teacher, I am the son of God. And he began to explain to him, and what do you do when you teach? You explain, you inform. And so he proceeded to teach Nicodemus about the new birth, how essential it was for you to be born again, born not only of the flesh, but also of the spirit, not only be born of the earth, but also to be born from above, from heaven. So rabbi means teacher, and uh, he proceeded to teach Nicodemus the spiritual truths of the new birth experience. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, it says that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching. 
In Matthew 26, 55, every day Jesus said, this is getting closer to the time of his arrest and crucifixion. As they gathered around him, Jesus said, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2, he gives it out an invitation to all who follow him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Well, how do you go about learning? You learn from what other people teach and are the scripture teachers. So he said, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. In other words, let me be the teacher. Sit down at my feet. Let me, uh, let me share with you and teach you the things of the kingdom. Uh, in the Great Commission... Our Lord said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go and make disciples teaching them. The word disciple means pupil. And as a pupil, you sit down at the feet of the teacher and you learn what the teacher has to say. And so in the Great Commission, he is commanding and teaching us to go out into the world and teach people about him. When you come to the book of Acts, chapter one and verse one, this is what Dr. Luke said to a man named Theophilus. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So uh, Dr. Luke uh, was used to doing research. Uh, he researched the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, recorded it in the gospel that bears his name, and then further research and leadership under the Holy Spirit brought about the writing of what we refer to as the book of Acts. So a medical doctor named Dr. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, sharing with us not only the good news of Jesus, but the principles and uh, teachings of our Lord. Uh, as our Lord left this earth, uh, the Holy Spirit came back and gave gifts to the church and among them, according to book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, he gave some as pastors and teachers. I view my calling as your pastor to include that of teaching. He gave to the church the gift of pastors and teachers. And so as I stand before you every Sunday, I share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I proclaim to you and trust that I will always proclaim to you the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that salvation is in him, that I would the Holy Spirit would bless the messages to inspire you, to instruct you, to teach you in all the ways of the Lord. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It teaches us. Now, we, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to believers. Look at it in verse one. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his, who came to him? his disciples came to him. His disciples, the word disciple, pupils. But I believe he taught the disciples, but the crowd overheard what he had to say. Now, I believe that you can take almost any passage of scripture and lead a person to Jesus. I believe that you can take the Sermon on the Mount and lead a person to the Lord Jesus. But the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to teach people, to teach disciples, to teach followers of the Lord Jesus how to live your life according to the principles and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're here to do today. So um, the Beatitudes turn the world's values upside down. We are tempted to say wretched are the poor for they have so little money. 
or wretched are those who mourn, for no one will hear their cry, or wretched are the meek, for they will be trampled under by the power of others. And yet Jesus shatters our stereotypes and asserts that the poor will be rich, the mourners will be comforted, and the meek will inherit the earth. What a strange kingdom our Lord offers to us. Now, the word in the Beatitudes, uh, all of the Beatitudes begins with this word blessed. Look at it in verse 3. And verse 3 is the one that we're looking at today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, on your outline, if you got a bulletin as you came in this morning, I've given you the word blessed. Now, beside of it, some, uh, a line, a blank line that you can write down the definition of the word blessed. It can be translated happy. Happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So happy. It can also be translated fortunate. Fortunate. You are fortunate if you are poor in spirit, for yours will be the kingdom of God. Uh, satisfied would be another way. You know, nobody satisfies us like Jesus does. And when we be, recognize our spiritual poverty and trust the Lord and humble ourselves before him, we'll be satisfied. The word contented would be another way to translate the word, to, to be contented. Uh, it, it speaks of an inward sufficiency, an inward sufficiency. So um, we are to be happy in the Lord. We realize that we are fortunate and we are blessed. We are contented and satisfied if we will follow the principles of our Lord. The greatness of the beatitude is not that they are wistful glimpses of some future beauty they are not golden promises of some distant glory. They are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that we have when we are committed to the Lord and to the principles of his teaching. Now, in society and in the world, the popular idea of happiness is having the right circumstances. Man, if things will just go right for me, I'll be happy. When I get out of school, I'll be happy. When I get a job, when I get the right kind of job, when I get a good paying job, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. When I get a divorce, <laughs> I'll be happy. When I have children, I'll be happy. When the children leave home, I'll be happy. <laughs> when I win the lottery, uh, it's okay if you triple tie it. <laughs> No, no, it's not either. <laughs> Could be, though. Talk to me about it. <laughs> the book of Ecclesiastes, written by the wisest man who ever lived, who was given the gift of wisdom when the Lord said to him, what is it that you would desire of me? Instead of asking for riches and fame, he said, God, give me wisdom that I might know how to lead these great people of yours. So Solomon has always been known as the wisest man who ever lived. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit described life as it is lived without the inclusion of God. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you get depressed because he says everything under the sun is vain, vanity, vanity, empty, empty, nothing to it whatsoever. 
Listen to these two verses of Scripture from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 11. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. Verse 11, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anyway. That's the kind of gloom and doom attitude that a person has toward life if he does not include God in his life. You remember what James told us in his epistle? He said, go to now you that say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city and do this and do that. You don't know what tomorrow will bring to you. Rather, he says, you should say this, if the Lord wills, we'll go and do this and we'll do that and we'll go to the other place and do this and that. Always include God in your plans. Solomon says, if you don't, you're gonna be miserable. If you don't, you're going to find life to be empty and, worth, and meaningless and, and, and vanity, vanity, vanity. That's all life is if you live it without God. God's way to joy and to happiness is having the right attitude, the right attitude. And according to Jesus, the first step to joy and to happiness is being poor in spirit. Now, he didn't say there are a couple of things he does not say or mean by this passage of Scripture. He's not referring to material poverty. There's nothing really blessed about being dirt poor, as we say, in material things. Just, just being very, very, very poor materially and financially. He's not talking about financial poverty. Nor is he talking about the poor little old me spirit. Where, oh, poor little old me, I, I'm, I'm not worth anything. I'm no good. Uh, I, shy, timid, woe is me. Beat your brow into humiliation. No, no, no. That's not what he's talking about here. The word poor does, however, mean abject poverty. But notice he qualifies this poverty, this poor, poorness. It's those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. This is the Bible's way and our Lord's way of saying, be humble. That's what he's really saying. Be humble. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. Blessed are those who are humble, who will humble themselves in the presence of the Lord. They are the ones who will find satisfaction and contentment and inner fulfillment in life if you will humble yourself before the Lord. I believe that principle can be applied to any and every situation and circumstance in life, whether it's marriage or job or education or just life in general. If you will humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, that principle will lead you to happiness and satisfaction and genuine, genuine joy. In the moments that remain, there are four basic ideas that I want us to pursue as we think about this first step to real blessed happiness and joy. And first of all, to look at the necessity, the necessity of humility. And I get this idea of necessity and humility from the Bible of all places. Imagine that. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Listen to what Micah 6, I believe it's printed for you on your bulletin. What does the Lord require of you but to walk humbly with your God? The entire passage of Matthew 6, 8 says, What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, 
to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He talks about having something to do. Well, some, be just, be fair and honest, something to love, kindness, to love kindness and someone with whom you can walk, to walk humbly with God. You cannot walk um, uh, with God unless you do it in a spirit of humility. Noah walked with the Lord. Enoch walked with the Lord and was not because God took him. And I believe that those individuals in the Bible described or anybody at any time, age or purpose who walks with God does so because they are humble before the Lord. Notice what he says in Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? The word require means what does God expect of you? What does God expect of you? What does God look for? You like the word when you, required literally means to search it out. It's just like the Lord takes a giant spiritual x-ray and he puts us under that spiritual x-ray and he, what is he looking for? He is looking for humility. He is searching for that. What does the Lord require of you? What does he look for? What does he search for in your life? He's looking for those who are humble in his presence. This is what he searches for. This is what he demands. This is what is essential. If you are to please God, it is absolutely essential that you be humble in his presence. It's something that is needed. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. In the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning with verse 18, uh, this is the account of our Lord coming to a, a, a fig tree. And, uh, and all outward appearances, uh, the fig tree is giving the impression that if you come over here and, and lift up the leaves of my branches, you're going to find some figs. Now, this is a parable that I believe has to do with the nation of Israel, but I believe there's some other principles here too. But let's look at it for just a moment. In Matthew 21, verse 18. Now, in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing alone the fig tree, seeing get my glasses here. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. So he came to this fig tree. Let's just stop there and, and, and camp out for just a moment or so. He saw this fig tree. He stopped where he was going. He turned around and he went over to the fig tree. He was hungry. The fig tree was giving the appearance. Uh, that there were figs to be had. But when he lifted up the leaf, there was nothing there. It was giving a false impression. And I wonder today in a spiritual application, if the Lord came looking at you and came, came looking to, if he pleased, the leaves in your life and lifted up parts of your life, what would he find? Would he find humility there? That's what he's looking for. What does God require of you? What does God demand and expect of you? What is he looking for in your life? He's looking for you to be a humble person. He wants to bless you. He wants to let this satisfaction, this fulfillment to be a great reward in your life. But you must begin with humility. That's what God is looking for. And without humility in your life, he's not going to bless you. Humility is the key to pleasing God. It is the key to spiritual greatness and service. You remember our Lord on one occasion, <clears throat> close to the time of his betrayal and crucifixion, meeting with the disciples in the upper room, 
Suddenly, uh, getting up, uh, taking off his outer garment, taking a, a, an apron and putting it around him, his waist and taking a bowl of water and, and proceeding to wash the disciples' feet. And after that, sitting down and said, you call me Lord and Master and you do well, so so I am. If I, your Lord and Master, have done this for you, you ought to do it one for another. Now you talk about a humbling experience to go and, and, and bathe somebody else's feet. Now, we don't practice that in our church. We believe there are only two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But the principle and the spirit of being a servant certainly is being taught by our Lord. This is the attitude that we ought to have in our hearts dwelling there, that we would be willing to humble ourselves and do whatever is necessary to serve other people. Jesus said, you want to be great in my kingdom? Then humble yourself and become a servant of everybody else, everyone else. Our Lord set the example in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that he thought not himself to robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, as, I, as Andre read a few moments ago, because of his humility, because of his taking uh, our place on the cross and humbling himself, becoming sin for us, God has exalted him. God has exalted him and will exalt him. Someday every one of us will bow the knee and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it begins with humility, humility, absolute humbleness. It's absolutely necessary for you to be humble, to be blessed. The second thing is, of course, the enemy of humility, the enemy of humility. It has been said humility is the, is the first virtue. Go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual poverty who humble themselves. That's the first virtue. When you go over back to the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs, pride is listed as the first of the seven deadly sins. Take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter six. Proverbs chapter six, beginning with verse 16. Proverbs chapter six, beginning with verse 16. Proverbs 6, 16 says, These, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. And we'll just stop right there because that's the first of the seven deadly sins. There are seven sins that are mentioned in those two verses of Scripture. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17. The first one he mentioned is haughty eyes. What are haughty eyes? Well, Webster's Dictionary says that haughty is a, a proud or, or vain spirit to the point of arrogance. You're just an arrogant person. You're puffed up with pride. Uh, arrogance means that you're overly convinced of your own importance. <laughs> you just think you're really hot. You think you're really it. You're the best thing next to a sliced bread that ever happened to anybody. And that is detestable unto the Lord. It is an abomination in his sight. It is a sin. It is a sin. In the book of Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5, the Bible said, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Now the word detest means to dislike intensely. Boy, you want to displease the Lord? You want to make God unhappy with you? You just get puffed up with pride. 
You become an arrogant person, strutting. You know, uh, I think it was Adrian Rogers who said some people can strut sitting down. <laughs> and there are a lot of people like that. Man, look at me, how important I am. The Bible says in James 4, 6, that God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to the proud. Someone has said that the middle letter of pride is I, the letter I, and the middle letter of sin is the letter I. Reminded me of what the mama whale said to the baby whale. When you come up to the surface and blow, you're going to get harpooned. And you will when you strut around in pride. I want to give you an acrostic, the word pride. Just write the letters pride. Write it down where you can write something out by the side of it. Pride. What is pride? Well, the letter P stands my plans above God's. My plans above God. The letter R stands for resources, my resources above God. I don't need God. I'm a self-made individual. There's no such thing as a self-made individual. My plans above God, my resources above God. The letter I, my intellect, my intellect above God's. I'm smarter than God is. The letter D, desires, my desires above God. And the letter E, enjoyment. My enjoyment above God. That spells pride. My plans above God, my resources above God, my intellect above God, my desires above God, my enjoyment above God. Self is at the heart of all sin. In 1 John 2, 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful proud of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Pride doesn't come from God. It comes from the world. And so God is opposed. You know, the word opposed literally means to be in opposition to. Boy, you don't want God against you. God is for you. But you get yourself puffed up with pride, he's going to take a stand that is opposed to you. God resists pride. He'll resist you if you are puffed up with pride and arrogance, thinking that you don't need God, that you're, you're, you're self-sufficient, and you don't need him at all. Well, God will take an opposition position against you and he will be opposed to you and he disagrees with you. Uh, notice not only the necessities of humility and the enemy of humility, but notice the third thing and that's the responsibility of humility. The responsibility of humility. In Exodus chapter 10 and verse 3, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? James 4.10, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now this humility that Jesus is talking about and the Bible describes is not to be a forced humility, but a voluntary humility. You voluntarily do this. I read in preparation for the sermon today an illustration about an individual saying, take an empty fruit jar. And, and throw that empty fruit jar in, into a pond, a lake of some kind. It, it'll float around. It's in the water, but there's one side of that fruit, bar, uh, fruit jar uh, that's not in the water. And that's on the inside. And as, uh, that fruit jar will float around in the water and you can see it, but it's empty. He said, um, you fill it up. Fill that fruit jar up with water 
And what happens to it? It'll sink to the bottom. It'll sink to the bottom. And it will be covered both in and outwardly with the water. And the same thing is true about the humble person. The person who humbles himself in the presence of the Lord. Uh, you, you strut around and everybody see, oh, he's a wonderful Christian. Oh, she's a great Christian person. But on the inside, they're empty. You, you know, it has been said a show-off Christian is an empty Christian. Did you get that? A show-off Christian is an empty Christian. And you need to be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to sink to the bottom. And nothing nor anything else in the whole wide world will be important to you but Jesus. And you put Jesus in your life. You let the Holy Spirit fill you. And I, I believe that, you know, there are some Christians who are full of the Spirit. Most of us are not. Well, we have the Spirit dwelling within us. But we limit Him. We're not under total control of him. And this is why I'm saying to you that I believe that a principle like this can apply to any situation in life. I don't care what your problems are. I don't care what your circumstances may be. I don't care what has or has not happened to you. But if you'll humble yourself and be full of the Spirit of God, there's nothing that you cannot solve with God's help if you'll be Spirit-filled and if you'll humble yourself in the presence of God. It works. You'll have to eat humble pie sometimes. But it will work. It will work. And so the responsibility, the word and the responsibility of humility, it says humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. But in the, in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, it literally translated means let yourself be humbled. So it refers to an outside force, an outside presence other than yourself. It means that you subject yourself to the presence of the Lord and let God humble you. Let the Holy Spirit humble you. Let that happen to you. Be willing, submit yourself to God and let him humble you. And if you will, he will eventually at the right time and in the right way exalt you. He promises that in the epistle of Peter. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. It be according to his schedule, not yours. So there's the necessity of humility. There's the enemy of humility. There's the responsibility for humility let yourself be humbled. But here's the fourth and final thing, and that is the blessings of humility. The blessings of humility. There are many, but I'm just going to give you two. And the first blessing of humility would be that you will be in God's presence. You will be in God's presence. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. An important passage. It's written out for you, printed out for you on your, on your bulletin. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. There are two places then where God lives. He lives in the high and holy place called heaven. But he also lives in an individual who has a broken and contrite heart. Now the word contrite, just on your bulletin or Bible, wherever, circle the word or underline the word contrite. Because he says that he also dwells with that person who is contrite and lowly in spirit. The word contrite means to be broken, to be crushed, to be beaten, to be trotted down. So over what? Over sin, over sin. How long has it been since you've been broken over your sin? Oh, we're living in such a calloused society. 
everywhere you turn, you know, do this, do that. Everybody is doing it. No, not everybody. Not everybody. You want God to dwell in you? You want to be full of the Spirit? You must be broken over your sin. How long has it been since you cried over any sin you ever committed? God does. God says, you want me to dwell in your heart? You don't need to swallow your pride. That's a, a quote we hear. We need to regurgitate our pride. Get rid of it. Confess it. Ask God to forgive you for being such a snob, for strutting in his presence. You get brokenhearted over your sin. God's looking for a person who is contrite in their hearts and lowly in spirit. Notice something else. Uh, it says in Isaiah 57, 15, that if the person is contrite and lowly in spirit, that the Lord will revive his spirit. He will revive the spirit of the contrite. And the word revive means to make alive. You want to be alive in Jesus? You, you, want, to, you want to be happy in the Lord? You want to be joyful in the Lord? Bring a broken heart to God over your sin. He'll revive you. He'll put life in your steps. True happiness means that God becomes the ruler of your life. And he'll be real in your life. God's presence will be there. Secondly, not only God's presence, but God's possessions. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children... Heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So we're heirs of God, folks. My father is rich in houses and lands. He holds the wealth of the world in his hands of rubies and diamonds of silver and gold. His coffers are full. His riches are untold. Not talking about material things necessarily, although he owns everything. God created everything. He owns everything. But he has spiritual blessings there. And as a child of God, you fall heir. Everything that belongs to Jesus, I have part of it. My investments are in heaven. And everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me as well. Over in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 8. Take, take your Bibles for just a moment. Time is already up, but forgive me for taking just another moment. Philippians chapter 3. In verses 4 and 8, if there was anybody who had every reason in the world to boast about his accomplishments in life, it was the Apostle Paul. And in Philippians 3, beginning with verse 4, Philippians 3, verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, if there's anybody who got anything to brag about, boy, I've got a lot to brag about. I was circumcised the eighth day was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is of the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of God, of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, everything that I've ever been able to accomplish in life, I just, compared to what I have in Jesus, it's just rubbish, just trash. Oh, how rich we are spiritually when we have a broken and contrite heart. F.B. Meyer lived another generation ago. A great uh, English preacher, um, wrote a lot of books, 
about biblical characters and so forth. One, one time, F.B. Meyer said, there was a time in my life when I thought that God's best and richest gifts were placed on a shelf way up high and that the more I grew and mature in my faith, the taller that I got spiritually, I could reach up and get God's best gifts. And then one day the Holy Spirit told me and showed me that God's best gifts are not way up high on the top shelf, but they're way down low on the bottom shelf. And when I stoop and kneel and humble myself in the presence of God, I find God's best. Happy are those who know their need of God for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I want you to take uh, your hymn book and we're going to sing a hymn of invitation but before we do, I want to tell you the story of how this song came to be written. Hymn number 307. Number 307. A song that... Um, Billy Graham's evangelistic crusade uh, always uses during their time of invitation. How many times have we been to a crusade or watched it on television and watched the crowds of people as they come out of the stadium responding to the invitation just as they are? This song was written by a young lady by the name of Charlotte Elliott. And this hymn and song, without question, has touched more hearts and influenced more people for Christ than any other song ever written. The text was born within the soul of an invalid woman who wrote those words out of intense feelings of, un, of uselessness and despair. Charlotte Elliott was born in England on March the 18th, 1789. And as a young person, she lived a carefree life gaining popularity as a portrait artist and a writer of humorous verse. By the time she was 30, however, her health began to fail rapidly, and soon she became a bedridden bed invalid for the remaining years of her life. When her, uh, with her uh, failing uh, came great feelings of despondency. In 1822, a noted Swiss evangelist by the name of Dr. Kaiser Milan visited the Elliott home in England, and his visit proved to be a turning point in Charlotte's life. In counseling Charlotte, uh, he said to her, Charlotte, you must come just as you are, a sinner to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Throughout the remainder of her life, Charlotte celebrated every year the day on which he had visited with her friend that had led her to a personal relationship with Christ, for she considered that to be her spiritual birthday. Although she did not write the text for this hymn until 14 years later, it is apparent that she never forgot the words of her friend, for they formed the very essence of this hymn. Look at the words of it. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am and waiting not, not hesitating, not procrastinating, 
just as I am and waiting not, to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict and many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yes, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. May we bow together. Oh, dear God, as we bow before you today, may we not just bow our heads, but bow our hearts. May we come to your throne of grace with a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, that we would kneel before you, not just in body, but in spirit, in attitude, in our hearts not be puffed up with pride and arrogance, thinking that we're self-sufficient and we don't need you. The beginning, the first step to true happiness and joy is to recognize our spiritual poverty and to humble ourselves before you. And oh God, as we come now to this time of invitation, I pray that all of us here today would have that kind of spirit and attitude that you'd speak to our hearts in whatever decision there are that needs to be made. Holy Spirit of God, lead us in an humble way. Help us, O oh God, as we bow before you to humble us. We cannot do it for ourselves. Convict us of sin, of self-righteousness, and guide us that we might be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God is leading you to make your decision, please come.